This is Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast for writers and readers by writers and readers. Hello and welcome to Dissecting Dragons. I'm Madeleine Vaughan. And I'm Jules Ironside. This week, vampire detectives and snarky female cops, urban fantasy tropes that need a change, part two. Yes, so last week uh, we got way too into it, into the discussion, and we decided that this really was going to be a two-parter. So here we are with the second part. If you've not listened to it just yet, you don't really need to in order to understand, but to get the most out of it, we do recommend it. Yeah, because we're not going to explain where we're coming from, um, and we're not going to do our usual caveats, other than to say, again, this is opinion and your mileage may vary. Yes, absolutely. Uh, this is obviously not meant to cause any offence um, and is also, you know, not meant to be kind of our... We're not trying to be snooty and say, well, if you don't think this, you're wrong. Uh, because we don't believe that at all. We are just going through what we personally like, what we have personally done, and what we personally wish we saw less of. So with that in mind, let's get started. So I think the next one we wanted to talk about um, was, uh, we, we, we talked about magic solving everything and how that was a little bit irritating. Um, it was the, the whole magic key thing. Um, but I think the next thing which really, and this is something that really kind of annoys me, is the super heterocast. <laughs> Yeah, it's um, and to be fair, I've seen a few people now saying on things like Twitter and Instagram, sort of, can can someone recommend urban fantasy that doesn't have an aggressively heterosexual overtone? Yeah, and it's not because people are saying they specifically want to read from the perspective of a queer character, mm. although they might do. It's more a case of everybody in a book being straight, uh, yeah, or you know that there absolutely must be this kind of... It's very noticeable in sort of um, male-led, particularly fantasy, but urban fantasy rather. So um, you can't help thinking Dresden Files when you say aggressively heterosexual, I'm afraid. Yeah. But we'll, we'll get into that. But yeah, no, not everybody needs to be gay or bi, etc. in an urban fantasy, but the default is a straight protagonist and a straight romantic subplot um, and some people are happy with that that's what they want that as we said this isn't your mileage may vary thing but and a lot of readers will be happy with it but what if the main character wasn't super straight or and the romance or potential romance is queer you know that can happen too yeah i think for me it's the thing that it, it actually makes me laugh a little bit because people like wow okay but why is everyone gay and i feel like it actually makes more sense if you're part of the lgbt community for example that you are surrounded and you are friends with lots and lots of other people who are also part of the lgbt community so that your band of you know your band of friends your crew are all a little bit gay as well um that, to be honest, actually makes more sense to me than for there not to be a single <laughs> gay character at all. Simply because, just because of the way um, that minority groups do gather together, it kind of does make a, a, a certain level of sense. Um, 
But certainly when you've got a really long running series, um, not to have any. And when you do, it's very much only for the titillation of the main character. Yeah. Um, and I Ming, mean, let's get let's get into that bit because mm. that is something and we know that I have some issues with the Dresden Files and I've also said that I do actually enjoy them. I'm still reading the books. I mm-hmm. still you know, some of my fondest urban fantasy moments are from the Dresden Files. Yeah. Polka will never die. You know that, that that's classic. That's it going is nowhere. Complete classic. <laughs> um and it, it I like I actually like Harry Dresden, even though there are times when I think, Yeah, you're a skeevy guy. <laughs> um, so, you know, mixed feelings there. But I, I will say that I don't think Jim Butch is necessarily trying to be more representative, but it's very noticeable that when you have even the hint of, of gay characters or the hint of bisexuality, it's two female characters with a male character. And this has happened twice now. Yeah. With two specific things. So you've got Butters, who's got, who's kind of got a, like a polyamorous thing going on with two female werewolf characters. And good Great, for him. Good for Butters. Butters deserves everything that he wants, really, because he's <laughs> amazing. I love Butters. But on the other hand, that's like, that's a cop out. And it's already happened with Thomas as well. And Thomas, who himself could quite easily be um, bisexual, because he's basically an incubus. Yeah. You know? He's a se- he's a white court vampire. He's a sex vampire. He, you know, it, it, at that point, it shouldn't necessarily be you, you're you're gonna. Is he seriously gonna restrict himself to only one thing on the menu? It doesn't make any sense. The thing that always gets me is that there's one joke about Harry being gay in the um in the series, which is when Thomas is first introduced. Yeah. Um, uh, well, not first introduced, that's a lie. It's uh, <laughs> it's when it's first sort of explained that they're brothers in that book. And Butters is just, they're like, uh, you know, when were you going to tell me that you had a boyfriend? Like, hey, no judgment, man. He, you know, he's gorgeous. I'm just surprised you didn't tell me. And Harry's like, no, wait. And, and at that point, which to be honest is total, it's kind of his older sibling going to totally mess with you energy of... Um, <laughs> of Thomas coming in and and playing along with it, which, to be honest, actually didn't feel so much like older sibling energy and felt more like um, f- best friend kind of energy where I'm going to mess with you, um, you know, to kind of make this out, make this, um, you know, to embarrass you kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and at the time, you know, I did think this is funny, but I also did think, yeah, to be honest, it really does make sense for Thomas to be um to be bisexual to be queer in some respect obviously not with Harry um because but, they're siblings but yeah, you know for, for it, all the white court vampires in fact yeah absolutely and like this is the other thing is that there's a disturbing thing in the white court vampires which is that the the father in the white court uh, of the white court um he would actually um, sleep with his daughters. Yeah, uh, I th- that's one of the things I've got a problem with with the White Court vampires. Not the just the incest side of things, you know, and I mean incest in the specific terms of um, a relative forcing sex upon you. Yeah. Um, but 
the fact that you've got this society that's been set up for thousands of years mm. that is apparently thriving based on that kind of um, misogyny and sexism and it just doesn't fucking make sense no and the thing is like i can sort of understand in terms of characterization that essentially this you know the the white court vampire the father um because of what happened to him in his absolute desperate bid to control um you know he might do that it's disgusting but i can understand you know sorry when i say i can understand his reasoning that sounds like i'm a, i'm a, i'm sort of accepting it that's not what i mean um you know but i can understand uh, like why he might to do that in in his bid to try and control the situation um but it was the the thing that kind of made me sort of raise my eyebrows was that he actually said you know um because it's even brought up you know did was this something that thomas was also subjected to and he says no it was something that only his sisters were objected to which didn't really make sense to me at the time because the whole premise that was going on here was that this was the father trying to control the situation trying to make sure that he maintained power by having power over people who could potentially usurp him yeah so unless the daughters had way more power naturally and needed to be coerced and controlled in that way yeah it doesn't make any sense so you know if you have a son in it's a case of well actually he's not going to amount to much i don't need to do that yeah then you know certainly and the thing is that they also kind of put forward this idea that you know he says oh well my father never really thought much of me and i'm and i'm like i'm you know why didn't he then kill you yeah um and I'm not sure whether maybe he tried to do that. I think maybe he did. But as in, like, it it all just felt very much like we're not going to even touch this idea of um, male abuse, male sexual abuse. That's just too far. But it's kind of okay to touch it with women, if that makes sense. Um, which just felt very very weird because it was almost like no no we can't we can't have any, any gay we i say gay abuse we can't have you know anything that is remotely like that that's just not pc uh, yes yeah, like that doesn't i can almost see butcher sitting there um, working that out from some of the things he said as well sort of oh no 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 i can't go that far but i've got to um float something in I don't know. The whole thing, to me, smacked of both laziness and squeamishness, and that was not a good combination. No, um, I mean, if you're gonna if you're gonna go for something that is that squeamish, um, I, I don't know. There, there were about fifty other ways that he could have had the father controlling his daughters. Yes, um, it, it's definitely something. So yeah, I mean, the problem is this is kind of typical of some of the sexism that characterises a lot of the Dresden Files. Yes. Um, and that's not me saying, hey, you should totally boycott the books, because I don't think you should. They're, they're actually good books. It's a good series. It's enjoyable. It's long-running for a reason. I would recommend them. Yeah. But at the same time, I'm not blind to some of the crap that's in them. Yeah, absolutely. And I think at, like, at one point, Butcher did sort of try to address homosexuality in it. Um, and it was, it, it? <laughs> it was literally just Harry being like, well, that's not my thing, but I, if guys just want to come here and, and have sex, uh, you know, 
uh, randomly and, you know, without knowing who they're having sex with, that's up to them. And I'm just there like, really? <laughs> this, really? Is, that's his, that's his... this is this is as close as we're going to get to, like, seriously, out of everyone that you've met, Harry, literally everyone you've met, none of them, none of them are even bisexual. Like, that, it just doesn't, it just doesn't feel realistic. Yeah. I mean, I will add the caveat here that when the original, the first few Dresden Files were being published, mm. it was almost around the same time that Sean and Maguire's uh, Rosemary and Rue, mm. sorry, um, um, October Day books were coming out. Yeah. And, you know, Sean and Maguire is a bisexual woman mm-hmm. and she wanted to have queer characters, but they you know the publishers kind of said well we're not sure we can actually sell that and she was obviously going through some sort of stuff that she was working out herself Mm -hmm. and didn't feel confident in her handling of things and that's that's understandable and as you go on with those books it becomes clear that the because all the characters are some species of fae okay there's no real human characters that you know they're they're, they're sort of very tertiary characters at best Mm. um and it becomes very clear later in the series, sort of at the midpoint when it becomes more acceptable to have queer characters in urban fantasy. Yeah. Basically because she's built up a reputation for selling books, so the publishers are now kind of like, yeah, we'll definitely be able to sell the books no matter what you put in them, so go ahead, kind of thing. The the Fae are actually default pansexual, all of them are, because they're going to live for thousands of years, so why would they see bodies different? They'd see things differently. Yeah. Which to me, that makes a lot more sense. Yeah. But the main, the, the the main couple, as it were, are basically straight. Even though he has had previous male-male relationships. Okay. Yeah. So you know, it's okay. That's that works. And you know, the thing is, I can say, oh yeah, I loved, I loved, I love to see some good queer content. Um, that that's my jam. I'm totally fine with there not being queer content as well. I don't, yeah. I don't mind if there isn't. Um, but certainly if you, if you, if you've got a, a world that that's big for them, just for there to be nothing, it just makes me suspicious. <laughs> like, where are they? What's happened to them in this world? Yeah. <laughs> Although, I mean, I have to say one of the things when I first started releasing Harker and Blackthorn, which admittedly wasn't that long ago, I have yeah. to remind myself of this, was the fact that am I barking up the wrong tree here with an openly bisexual main character who is um you know certainly in the early books she's she's dating and sleeping with women predominantly yeah Yeah. and you know if you go back to previous novellas and things she was kind of with women and it it's like have i trodden in you know this area subgenre where people mostly want heterosexual content and that that is the thing because i mean i feel very strongly that yes i want to write characters who might happen to be queer as well they're not Mm. queer characters tm because i don't like that i don't like the main defining feature of a character being what their sexuality or gender or whatever is Yeah. yeah i don't think that's good representation i think that's actually doing a disservice to people yeah i completely agree um so yeah <laughs> to be honest you just you you can't really answer that question i know again for me personally i wanted you know 
some good queer characters. I just wanted characters who were, you know, who were queer in some form or another. Um, even if the main, you know, premise of the story wasn't even romance or anything like that. I guess it's probably why I love Six of Crows so much. Yeah. Because that's such a diverse bunch of characters whose diversity isn't the main core of the story by any stretch of the imagination. Yeah, they're characters first and diverse second, which is the way you should do it, in my opinion. Yeah. Um, And yeah, I'll agree with that. And I guess... I've also read urban fantasy where it is very specifically a lesbian main character. Great. Yeah. But the problem with some of them are that they're almost Harry Dresden in reverse. Mm. Harry Dresden? Harry, yeah. Yeah, Harry Dresden. Sorry, mind went completely then. Um, where it's a case of, well, we're going to aggressively push this in your face rather than push the story. Yeah. And I don't have, obviously, I don't have a problem with female female pairings. That's great. That's that's my jam, definitely. But not when it's to the exclusion of, of plot and character arc and everything else. Yeah, I yeah, I completely agree. Um to be honest as well, I think because you you're very particular about romance as well, I think. Well, I am, but I you know, I can it's a bit like the stargazy pie. I can eat around the fish eyes, okay? I can I can t- <laughs> I can totally um, read around the romance, even if it doesn't fetch me personally. That's fine. But if it kind of starts to take over that this character's... Uh, it's it's why I hate in in urban fantasy where you've got this incredibly oversexed main character, like they must be looking for it at all times. Yeah. For anyone, by the way, who's listening and doesn't know what Stargazy Pie is, <laughs> Stargazy Pie is a delicacy that you particularly get in places like Cornwall, uh, where you have the two little fish heads sticking up and they're called Stargazy Pie because you've got the fish and they've still got their eyes and they're looking up at the sky. Like, they're looking at stars rather than just being dead, cold and empty. Yes, it's a delicacy of Porthenis, or mouse hole in Cornwall. <laughs> Little sidebar. But yeah, if you see what I mean, I can yeah. totally get around the the romantic subplot if it doesn't particularly grab me. That's not a problem, as long as you're giving me something else to sink my teeth into. Absolutely, yeah. No, no, I, I, I completely agree with you. Um... And yeah, I I guess it's just because as well for me, it just doesn't feel natural in in the same way that the over heterosexual kind of things doesn't feel natural because, and perhaps this is just my personal experience, but I I don't really know unless you're kind of like teenagers at Freshers Fair, and even then, um, I just don't know people who are that aggressively constantly looking for sex. Well, I'm trying to think that there's always a couple, but they seem to be more odd than anything else. Yeah, and as in they kind of stuck out because of it. It's um, it's like the the Rachel Morgan, the Hollows series. Um, uh, I've forgotten the name of the author. This is not a good day for me remembering people's names. <laughs> I hope this is not my my impending senility. Um, but anyway, yeah, the. There is actually a a main bisexual character, as in, oh, sorry, secondary character, Ivy, the vampire, mm. um, which is great, or it sounds great, until you realise that you're basically going to get queer baited about whether she gets together with the main character for yeah. about seven books. 
<laughs> well, well, the main character, Rachel Morgan, kind of is is eyeing up everything in shoe leather that's male and, you know, apparently has lickable washboard abs. And it is that level of kind of I'm eyeing people. Yeah. And I, I get that some of that is a case of, well, this is what's selling. So publishers are saying we need more of it. And yeah. that's what you get in an early urban fantasy. And when you've got a series that's been running for 15 books, well, actually, that's technically 15 years because generally publishers release one book in a series a year. It's not like a, um urban fantasy by indie authors where you might have six books in a year. Yeah. <laughs> like certain people. Yeah, mentioning no names, obviously. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it, it is kind of frustrating, particularly if when you have the couple together, we've obviously talked about the, the alpha male and the the sassy TM female character and it's like if it's the same thing if it feels like it's just a sort of cut and paste job with different authors and different different series and things then it gets frustrating I want to read about real characters you know yeah absolutely different ones so yeah no completely agree all right uh moving on <laughs> <laughs> Uh, in the same kind of tone, uh, the the default able-bodied neurotypical main character, as well. Yes. Um, yeah, people who with disabilities can save the world too. Yeah, and like the thing is, like, it, it, there's lots of different types of disability. Um, people think disability and they immediately think, oh, okay, but like, how can I get them if they're in a wheelchair or stuff like that? And I'm like, there are lots of disabilities. Not excluding, yes, you can have some awesome characters who are in wheelchairs. Um, and they might not be in the wheelchairs constantly. Different people need sort of uh, mobility aids for different reasons at different times. Um, so you can totally have that. But also there are lots and lots and lots and lots of different types of disability. Um, and there's lots of ways of representing them. You can do that too. And this includes things like chronic pain. It includes things like mental disability. It includes things like uh, neurodivergence, etc. You can represent th those things too. Again, I think this is, this is why Six of Crows, man. Six of Crows just does it for me because you've got that. You've got that representation um, in various different forms. Um, and they are, yes, it is part of who the characters are because our brains, our bodies do define us in certain respects, but it's not everything they are. It doesn't make up everything. Um, and it, it also doesn't stop them. Kaz Brecker is no less a force of nature just because he has to use a cane. Yeah, absolutely. Um, obviously, we're supposed to be talking a little bit about how we've Sorry, done our yes. own. It, we? So, um, <laughs> but yeah, uh, obviously with Unveiled, um, M was in a terrible car accident and was left with trauma, dyslexia um, and chronic pain. Yes. Which, you know, is, you know, she's basically able-bodied. She's fine and everything, but she has difficulty speaking. She has difficulty with words. Um, she she has been left with permanent brain damage. In even if that hasn't meant that it's interfered with how people see her, at least until she starts speaking, mm -hmm. um, it's definitely interfered with how she sees herself and what she thinks she can achieve. And you know, the series is kind of a long, a long look at her coming to grips with with everything that you know. The fact that she is a completely different person. 
In some respects, the mo- her mother kind of stole the person she would be from her. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and without going into too many spoilers with Kestrel, who also had a very horrific accident, um, she's been left with a lot of scars. She has been um, incredibly traumatised in ways that she perhaps hasn't even started to kind of unravel yet as well. Um, And certainly this has also really affected the way that she deals with trauma, Um, which will come back to bite her because she does not deal with it well (laughs) at all. Yeah, and it's like, okay, um, Amy is able-bodied and she escaped a lot of the the problems that, you know, she was in the same car accident Em was in, Mm. um, and she escaped a lot of it. And it's only later on that you realise that what Amy did, because she's so intelligent, she compartmentalised things, then put them away and didn't deal with them. Yeah. And when those things come back, it's at a really important turning point in her life where she stands to lose an awful lot if she doesn't deal with her shit. Yes, absolutely. Um, Again, talking around spoilers. Talking around spoilers, yes. I try not to do spoilers for books that haven't even been published yet. Yes. Uh, or in my case, written. Um, but uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, so there's lots and lots of ways that you can represent it. There's lots and lots of ways that you can kind of bring it all in. And it can be to do with with PTSD, trauma, etc. Um, it could be, you know, very visible physical disability, or it could be something which is more invisible as well. Um, so don't limit yourself and do have a little think about how you can play around with these with these sorts of things um yeah because not least you know at the very least you're gonna have a few dyslexic characters and you're gonna have some dyspraxic characters and that doesn't just mean oh they're bad at spelling it means that there'll be a number of things that, that perhaps they're better at they might be better with the pattern recognition or stuff like that as well um or they, you know, they may struggle with other things, they may have poor memory issues, etc. Um, you are going to have characters like that, um, because the world is full of people like that. Yeah. Uh, speaking of the world, our next one is, the world is always ending. Um, the problem with this is, I think you need to scale up the disasters. Say you're writing an urban fantasy series. Yeah. You should scale up the disasters that get faced in each book, because if you start with the world is ending... You've kind of fucked yourself for the rest of the series. Yeah, you you sort of have, because <laughs> where do you go from there? <laughs> it's like, well, the universe is ending. Great. What are you going to do for the next ten books? Or seven or whatever you're going to do. Yeah. It just, you, you can't go anywhere with it. it. And also, it sort of gets boring. It gets a bit yeah. samey. How are people supposed to get invested and fearful about what's going to happen if it just feels like... Right, well, we're dealing with this again, are we? And I think the thing is, there's something to be said for a small-scale threat that affects only a small group of people because, again, it's it's the personal, isn't mm. it? So you identify with those characters and you get invested in that particular struggle. Um, and, yeah, maybe later on in the series it has more far-reaching implications. Yeah. Um, so, so, yeah, it's kind of... I guess with Buffy the Vampire Slayer, 
you didn't have the world ending in almost every single episode. You had the world ending at the end of a lot of, or, you know, potentially ending as it was known. Yeah. Uh, at the end of a lot of the seasons. Yeah. And that worked okay because the seasons were around 22 to 24 episodes long. So you had lots of creatures of the week and ongoing story arc and stuff. So you didn't get, I don't think you got bogged down with it. No, I also the, a lot of the things were linked in with one another. Yeah, I think with the early Supernatural series as well. And I bear in mind I didn't see the last few seasons. Yeah. I did feel that they started to recycle the same plot for every season. And I'm like, you know what, fine, because you guys are still apparently really loving what you're doing. And people are still watching it and they're still invested. But I, it lost me because it was... I'm like, oh, right, so the world's ending. Guess it's Tuesday again, kind of thing. Yeah, it, it really is. And, like... To be honest, of the new seasons, because I eventually did stop watching, I just couldn't do it anymore. I really yeah. did like the Monsters of the Week, but, you know, because they did some great Monsters of the Week, but it wasn't as common. And I think the real issue was just the fact that um, everything was so big that we didn't really get a chance to do the small properly, as far as, far as I was concerned. Yeah. Um, and actually, you've got to remember that sometimes, you know, the small things, that's a, a person's whole world. You know? Yeah, definitely. Um, I guess the other thing is that there, there are comparatively few places on Earth as a whole where there are absolutely, there's absolutely no light kind of thing, where you just have a, a small desperate group of people fighting against the darkness yeah um so you've, you've got to balance it with with ordinary evil if you like and ordinary evil is really awful you need someone to be fighting that as well yeah i completely agree i, I don't know it just it just became a little bit too much for me it just because as you said they kind of had to kind of reset and it because they had to reset because they had to go through these massive extremes constantly um you you lost something because they could never really develop or change. Yeah. And every time yeah. that they did develop, it just sort of had to get undone toward the end. And I just sort of felt like, ah, I'm not getting anything out of this anymore. So that was just me, I guess. Yeah. I mean, on that note, uh, an additional one, it kind of feeds into the previous one, is um, the villain is always supernatural. And... My point here is that humans can be the most uniquely evil creatures on the planet, so mm. maybe we should try using that occasionally. Yeah, and like I don't mind if you're writing a, a series which involves a lot of supernatural shenanigans, um, totally fine for you to have sort of supernatural villains, but you could also introduce non supernatural villains in different, yeah. different respects, even <laughs> if they're small villains, um, you know, you can sometimes they can be okay so it's not a good example because he is supernatural in some respects but um you know when you have things like harry potter and you have sorry i know we're supposed to be talking about your urban, urban fantasy, fantasy examples are not really on point today. no they're really not and i apologize for that um but when you have things like harry potter yeah lord voldemort big bad big supernatural bad but you know who was really hated umbridge yeah. 
Um, and she was kind of a human evil. The Dursleys were a human evil and they were very, you know, they were, they were, I would say they were evil to, in some respects. Yeah, definitely. Um, and it, uh, something I've been doing with Harper and Blackthorn is this, is this organisation Evergreen Technologies. Yeah. Who are, to wit, human. Yes. And they are doing the sort of things that you would see from the privileged position of being a multi-billion pound corporation that can buy its way out of trouble and cover its tracks quite well. And, and yes, they use people. Yeah, I mean, they haven't been the main threat in every book yet. I'm no. not going to say that's coming, guys, because... <laughs> but it is coming. But they uh, lurk. <laughs> they lurk. <laughs> they lurk. But I would have said they are worse than probably the smaller things that um, Harper and Blackthorn actually have to deal with. It's just that the smaller things are more immediate. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, they're just kind of plain evil, to be honest. Um, yeah, I mean, you obviously know a bit more about I, what they're up to than... Yes, I do. But I think, I think even if, you know, those who've sort of seen kind of what they get up to and, and seen sort of... Because there's been a few hints already. Um, yeah. Certainly, what their, in, end game is. <laughs> if, what their end game is, but also kind of what they've done and how they've used people to get that end game. Yeah, you know, um, they are. They're, they're kind of frightening. They're not good. And I suppose the thing is, they frame themselves as good. They're a green energy company. They promote futures. They swoop in and fund departments that are doing promising research. Yeah. On the surface of things, they would appear to be the good guys. Yes. On the surface. On the surface. Anyway, uh, let's move on. So, <laughs> um, okay, the, here's one that's annoying. The PI who was a dumbass. <laughs> I hate that so much because we have to be told how clever and competent they are and then... They're, yeah. they're really not. They're dumb as a box of rocks. Yeah, so having a supernatural private investigator in urban fantasy is an evergreen trope, but there are a number of them who just don't actually solve anything um, and miss even the most obvious clues. Now, I understand the technique where essentially you kind of want the reader to be smarter than the character. Um, whose narrative point you're seeing it through and ways that you can get around that is things like Sherlock Holmes you get around that by ha by seeing it mostly from Watson's point of view uh, my urban fantasy <laughs> examples are again really not on point this today um, <laughs> but the point is that you, you can you know there are techniques that you can use and certainly you want things to be sort of the reader to sort of feel satisfied because they're following on but if it if you do that too much, if you have it so much so that the main character who's meant to be this amazing PI is actually dumber than a box of rocks, um, you know, why have a private investigator main character if they're not going to be intelligent enough to work stuff out? Why? I mean, unless that's part of their character, their character is actually they're, they're really incompetent. Um, which I guess could have a certain charm to it, but it's going to get old real quick unless you, you make it work in a very specific way. It's kind of like they are actually, it's kind of the Inspector Gadget thing where they are actually kind of a bit stupid and they just luck their way through everything <laughs> with smarter colleagues behind them shaking their heads and sweating profusely kind of thing. <laughs> yes, exactly. 
Um, so yeah, it's just... I think it's also this kind of this idea of, oh, okay, we need to have private investigators, but then you've kind of got to put in a fair amount of work to make it work, if that makes yeah. sense. And I have to say, the whole PI thing is... Um, there aren't very many people working as private investigators in the UK, not officially. No. There isn't like a PI license over here like there is in America. Just like there isn't a, an official bounty hunter's license in the UK as there is in America. It, it, this is an unusual thing. Um, I actually think that frees us up to have more amateur sleuths in a different way. So, you know, like the um, 70 year old woman at the, the library's local knitting circle who notices that three members are actually vampires and more people are going missing every week. I'm down with that. That's interesting. <laughs> Jules is a <laughs> Jules's affinity with the uh, seventy-year-old women is <laughs> shining through again. Jules yeah. likes these characters. <laughs> the snooty old want woman a grumpy old lady. You know, yeah, <laughs> give me the octogenarian who's heading the call to adventure. <laughs> Maybe I'll write that down book. You know, you should. You should. You should totally do that. I have confidence in your ability to do that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I completely agree. Um, it just, past a certain point, it it lacks any kind of, yeah, I, it's just boring, to be honest. Well, it's like the bar, or, you know, or um, Annette Marie did this quite well, with a bartender who doesn't realise that she's working for a magical community. And she's human, you know, she has no innate magic or anything at all. Um, but she's quite resourceful, so she actually manages to survive a lot of things to the point where she gets a little bit of basic training. Yeah. Um, and she she gets involved because she knows certain things are right and certain things are worth protecting. So you can't help warming to her, even while you're thinking you are literally running into a fight where the people are basically wielding lightning against each other and you've got nothing you know yeah but you're doing it even though you might end up dead because you know it's right and that's that's an attractive quality not gonna yeah, lie definitely. but yeah no i i agree um i think it's you know on the alternative you can have you can have it where actually they're a little bit too smart or it comes a little bit too easily um and that isn't satisfying either yeah, unless you balance it with a major flaw. It's like um, the whole Rebecca can shake your hand and tell you your life story. Yeah. But she has real problems expressing the full range of human emotions because <laughs> she's just got rid of anything that didn't seem to be useful. Yeah, absolutely. Um, um, it's it's But also, <laughs> it's like, a ah, this mystery is solved and there's there's no real proper struggle for it. And you're like, oh, okay, just like that, huh? It's just dull. I don't want that. Nobody wants yeah. that. It's the magic key thing, isn't it? Yeah. Okay. Um, okay. Another trope that kind of yeah, I think this is one that definitely really bugs me, and that is the dedicated monster hunter. Now, before people say I'm being a bit of a hypocrite, since I'm writing a series about <laughs> no. cryptid. Yeah. Hold on a second. <laughs> cryptozoology investigation, which is why I call it cryptozoology investigation, because Harker and Blackthorn don't hack and slash their way through they don't go mon they don't go looking for monsters and then murder them they go looking for you know 
cryptozoological mysteries and then solve them and you know usually find evergreen washing blood off their hands nearby <laughs> that's generally what happens um i just think it's a tired trope i'm i'm bored of um monster hunters turning up and it being a you know sometimes it's going to be a monster that needs to be killed because that's just the reality of okay this thing may have human-like sentience but it's not human and it sees us not just as a food source but a source of of torture fun time yeah and i think that perhaps we should remove that from the equation even if it's the only one of its kind let's hope it's the only one of its kind yeah that makes sense but i hate the way that a lot of people who write these sort of books seem to go oh well i'll just pick and mix the folklore and myth till it makes no sense out of its original context mm. or they make something up and it is so vague the monster could just be an, an amorphous blob yeah no i'm i'm with you on that and i agree it it lacks any kind of satisfaction um and you know i loved supernatural when it first started because i hadn't seen really anything like that before when I first watched Supernatural. I loved the premise of it, you know, these, right, well, we've got these monsters which are trying to kill and eat people that most of the world don't know exist. We will actually stop and destroy them. Um, and then along the way, perhaps there are some, you know, some other questions come into it. Um, so I, you know, I liked that, but yeah, I think the main issue here is just the the complete disregard for for folklore. I think, and for stories and how these things... I don't mind people reimagining uh, folklore and reimagining creatures and myths and stories and stuff like that. And I could, you know, it'd be massively hypocritical if I said that I did mind because I've done the exact same thing. So I have no problem with that. Um, but just the whole kind of... The blind sort of fumbling through. It's boring. It's kind of like, well, I'll just Google an appropriate exotic-sounding exotic name and, oh, this looks good. Um, <laughs> pointing at Jim Butcher again from his m more recent books where the big the big kill threat is uh, a favori. And it's like, it, it bears no resemblance at all to the original Irish folk and mythology. And it just feels a bit like you felt it was okay to just come in and take whatever you wanted kind of thing and it's it's i think that i just think that's rude but maybe i think it's rude because if i'm going to take something from another culture to use with one of my books i exhaustively research and then try and treat it sensitively so i don't know maybe i'm the weirdo no i I also think, to be honest, we're, <laughs> we're likely to, because we've both drawn from that mythology as well, it's likely to hit us harder because of the way that it's kind of been represented and understood, you know? Yeah. Um, because obviously Jules and I are both massive nerds um, and we've spent a lot of time researching and learning about celtic um and irish mythology uh not least because of f for heritage reasons and all that jazz so i yeah i don't know I, I haven't read the latest jim butcher so i can't comment on how he's done it um yeah i mean i won't say that i was sat there offended all the way through it was more a case of 
oh right this this is all the effort you were willing to put in eye roll kind of thing mm, yeah okay i've not read it so i can't i can't judge but um i i do trust your judgment for the most part <laughs> and again it's not a bad book no it has a few bad things in it in my opinion Mm. Um, on this note wishy-washy magic systems as well <laughs> I feel like we're, we're bullying Jim Butcher <laughs> oh no I wasn't specifically talking about Jim Butcher because he does actually have a magic system that kind of has its own internal logic Yeah, it's just when people are kind of like oh we have or they go through a very off the peg thing it's like oh the four elemental powers and they never really explore what the differences are so an air spell could have been replaced with a fire spell with no change at all in in what happened in the plot. Yeah. I I mean, I love a good magic system. Anyone who's read the Hamartia cycle will will see that perhaps I can love a good magic system a little too much. Um, But yeah, I think if you're going to have a sort of a system like that, it does, it needs to make a certain level of sense. And um, as we said in the previous episode, it should also be a hindrance as well as a help. Yeah, it's certainly... I mean, the way... Again, I feel really bad. I feel really bad about this. Um, actually, no. I'm going to give an example from Kestrel, even though no one's read it. Um, so with Kestrel, the kind of the way that a lot of the magic sort of works is a little bit like actually in the Hamartia cycle, whereby it's kind of like mathematics, or it's kind of like, um, let's say you, uh, it's kind of like engineering. If you have the right tools and the right time, you can build something amazing. Um, really, the limit is your imagination and your resources. Um, but it does take time. Um, and it does take, you know, the right tools. Um, and you also kind of have to have the right sort of knowledge. Um, now, the way that a lot of people get around this in Kestrel is that they will kind of use um, pre-existing templates, as it were. Yeah. Um, which works for some people. And in other cases, they essentially just literally, through sheer force of will... <laughs> believe things into being <laughs> as it were which is a whole other thing which i don't really have time to go into um and i'm not going to go into it even if i did um because hopefully you guys will be able to read the book when it comes out um but there does there needs to be a logic within it and it cannot just be okay well you can just do that at any time you know flick of the hands and to be honest i do think that jim butcher has been able to do that um, in fact, there's even a joke at one point where one of the characters, they're, they're playing D&D and uh, Harry is actually complaining about how the magic doesn't make any sense. He's like, you can't just sort of create a flame ball like that. Well, you know, and, and so I actually kind of enjoyed that where he sort of acknowledged, no, you, there's got to be kind of a format here. So I think it can be done well. Um, I think if you overdo it as well, to be honest, you're likely to just start to annoy or kind of bore your readers, though. Yeah, I mean, um, the thing is, obviously, Madeline and I are writing the same universe. So yeah. when Amy says magic is physics that's gone feral, yeah, 
she's she's absolutely right it, it's basically if you have the mathematical know-how then potentially you can create the same effects and it's the same as Madeline's just said but coming from the perspective of someone who is a physicist and a mathematician yeah exactly um <laughs> sorry I can't say any spoilers but <laughs> it makes me excited <laughs> okay well this one is it's not going to surprise anyone when I say this is one of my absolute pet peeves in anything. Mm. But um, rape as a backstory or as a way for a main character to overcome a troubling development in her character arc. Plucky heroine style. I am so incredibly <sighs> bored of this. Uh, I can't... I, I, I literally do not have the words to express how bored I am of this. Mm. Um, it's It's lazy. In my opinion, I am fed up of seeing it in urban fantasy. I'm fed up of seeing it in, in fucking everything. Because what happens is it gets put in and then people then don't bother dealing with the fallout. Yeah. Um, I, I read the first three Mercy Thompson books, uh, which is a, a beloved series by many urban fantasy fans. And I probably am never going to read another book in that series, probably. Simply because she ends up getting raped in the third book it feels contrived you don't feel that the villain was somebody who would actually do that until you get to that point it's kind of like it's it's almost an opportunity mm-hmm. um and it feel the whole thing felt to me like it wasn't done well and then she finishes off the book with i'm going to blot out this you know this rape scenario where i was overpowered even though i'm this powerful supernatural creature um by sleeping with the alpha male and it's just, the whole thing together was just gross. So, yeah, I probably won't be reading on in that series because uh, I, I've got better t- things to do with my time. Um, so, yeah, I'm just, I'm not saying don't write about it and have it as a traumatic thing. It's a, it, it, it is kind of an attempted rape is a, is a backstory issue for one of my side characters. But I can honestly say now that it, certainly in the urban fantasy series I'm currently writing, no one's going to get raped. I'm not having it because I think that's not something I want to put on the table and and then have to deal with the fallout of. There will be other horrible traumatic things that they have to get over. I'm going to do that instead. Yes. Okay. Uh, yeah, I, that's fair enough. And I I'm in agreement um, I don't mind a story which deals with that, but the prevalence in which it is done um, just as a kind of sort of a, like a tick. Does that make sense? Just just as a sort of, yeah. uh, well, I've, you know, we've got to have that. That's just going to be part of the experience. We can do better things to signal that someone is a bad guy. Yeah. As well. And, you know, it's not like it's the only thing that women have to get past. Yeah. So I'm just I get, I'm just bored of it. I'm, I'm bored of gendered violence as, as a way of, of giving a main character something to yeah. strive against. And again, it's that thing of, um, you know, if, if you're saying, well, you know, this is an important thing that we need to talk about... Um, I I just get very surprised by the by the that it tends to be the people who say this is an important thing that we we need to talk about never want to talk about male on male violence. Yeah, of of any type in fairness because this oh god I could really go off on a tangent but basically men are far more likely to be victims of violence on the street. Yeah. 
by other men. So yeah, the problem is that men are inflicting violence, but they're also they're inflicting it far more often on each other. It's very noticeable to me that the people who tend to cry, well, you know, we need to talk about these things. We can't just pretend like they don't happen. Um, don't want to talk about the other things. Well, they don't want to talk about those things either because they put it on the table and then a book later it's kind of forgotten Yeah, because it's convenient to do so until eight books later they bring it up again Yeah, because it's convenient to do so. And I'm like, no, sorry, that doesn't wash. You don't get it. Yeah. So, yeah, that's one that really makes me quite cross. (laughs) One that baffles me more than makes me cross is default Christianity as the main character's faith. This is particularly weird in urban fantasy when they're all like various creatures i don't i don't get it (laughs) i I mean i think the thing is is it's another thing that seems to get wheeled out as an afterthought now if you're going to have a christian main character okay fine but actually explore what that means in the same way if you're going to have a jewish main character are they genuinely orthodox jew are they an ascetic jew are they hellenic are they uh basically like not you know non-denominationalized so they're, they're jewish kind of by race rather than by religion yeah um and it's you know going to synagogue is kind of more of a social thing and it's about social cohesion and you know that's all valid as well absolutely um, it, it, but it's just I mean, it, as i've said before that was done really well in the jezebel files you know mm. she was a jewish character she wasn't especially religious but the magic system and everything is built up around Jewish mythology and things. And it's like, oh, I've never seen this before. This is really well done. It's interesting. Mm. Um, you, th- there's no reason you couldn't do something like that around Christianity without it coming across as really bigoted and making me have a knee jerk. I'm just go- not going to read the book reaction. You know, It's possible. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, and like I've seen some good examples of stuff which is based on Christian mythos. Um, Abrahamic mythos um, I say mythos not to offend anyone um, but just as just as a kind of a general term where you know Christianity does does sort of play into it like you've got a little bit of um, John Constantine yeah but I mean and what's really interesting there is in the comics it draws from many many different faiths and religions yes and mythologies and each are treated equally and i'm like i can get on board with that that's Mm. interesting yeah absolutely um and there's uh, i don't know i I think constantine is interesting as well because it does draw on all, all of these kinds of things but he does he has these certain struggles with heaven which are very very particular you know um yeah, he was raised Catholic and it's obviously really done a number on his psyche. That's it. That Again, that's interesting. That's exploring something. Yeah, absolutely. But um, sort of like, oh, I got made into a vampire four years ago by a random attack in the park and I'm not going to mention anything to do with religion and then suddenly I'm going to be having a chat and saying, am I still one of God's creatures? It's like, do you even believe in God? This is the first we've heard of it and we're three books into the series. Yeah. I mean, even with things like Twilight... Um, I felt like at the very least there was the, <laughs> there was a level of understanding there. Kyle you know, was a religious man. Yeah, um, he was the son of a priest, and he was kind of like he does believe in an afterlife, and he you know isn't sure vampires get to go there, but he thinks that God might take their efforts into account. Whereas Ed- Edward's kind of like, no, there's God and there's an afterlife, but we're damned no matter what. So he's very Calvinistic, and yeah. Bella's kind of like, 
eh, isn't the church a social thing that my mother used to do kind of thing? Not yeah. sure I believe in God. Yeah, absolutely. So, so you're right, it is explored properly. Mm. I, I just... I like to see it done properly because obviously religious me- religion means different things to different people, as you've said. It can be a, it, it can be a social thing. It can just be a a construct. And I can also understand a story which kind of explores the you know someone sort of saying, um, actually up until now I haven't really had to think about it because it was just you know something that was kind of in the background. But now that I'm in this position where I am perhaps damned, maybe that is something that I want to think about because I'm genuinely worried about it. Yeah. Um, you know, because perhaps it's like, well, actually, I'm starting to believe in religion a little bit more because I've just discovered that angels exist. Um, you know, you can understand that, but I, I kind of want to see it done properly. It's like, it was the thing that bugged, and I really like this series. I like the Jane Yellow Rock series by Faith Hunter because she, the author has clearly put a lot of thought into it. Mm. Um, Jane Yellow Rock is actually a Cherokee and she is a skinwalker. Um, but she has this default Christianity, which doesn't kind of make sense to me at all. And what really, really bugged me was she goes to church because, you know, it's Sunday and that's what you do. And she sat there in church thinking, well, I won't take communion because... I haven't confessed, which is a typical Catholic thing. But mm-hmm. she's thinking it wasn't bad to do what she'd done. Now, what she'd done was killed some people who admittedly were vampires who'd been, you know, this sort of child prostitution type ring. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, I think everyone's on board with that. Maybe even God's on board with that. But then she's like, yeah, but she, God would have a problem with what I did the day after. And what she did done the day after was had sex out of wedlock. And that I do have a problem with. <laughs> Because that's kind of, you can't throw that in there and then not explore where someone who has the sort of world experience that this creature who is going to live for hundreds of years is is going to not be questioning that as a tenant of, of a robust faith. Yeah. And let me get this straight, there is a difference between religion and faith. Religion is a an organisation it is a set of principles and rules and guidelines given to you by people who interpret God's word, if mm. you like. Whereas faith is what you feel about the divine and spirituality and your place in the universe. And I think faith is far more useful than religion. Um, and it's very personal. It should be personal. It shouldn't be something that you necessarily splash around to everybody because it's personal. It, there's no ev- There's no evidence supporting it. And it's just... It really bugs me when I see random throwaway stuff in books like that, particularly urban fantasy, where it doesn't really need to be. Yeah. I, as we've said, religion is, you know, well, religion, belief, these things are incredibly personal. Um, there are lots of different ways that people are going to sort of do it. So it does strike me as a, is strange, particularly because they're supernatural creatures particularly because it this is they're not living ordinary lives where they're just kind of getting on and they don't have to think about it if they've thought about it it's within a different context that the average person has yeah okay let's move on (laughs) sorry okay so uh the self-hating vampire yeah i mean this is just an iteration of the chosen one who doesn't want to be a chosen one Mm. as in it can work but you better have some good reasons yeah i mean like the whole 
I can understand the whole sort of I hate I hate what I've become or I hate what I've been turned into potentially because it wasn't sort of their choice um but I also it's funny to me that whenever you see a vampire who likes what they've become they're kind of being painted as sort of they're always the bad guy and to be honest I do kind of want to just see a version of a vampire who's just there like yep I'm I'm sort of I'm I'm actually kind of digging what's happening here I'm sort of enjoying myself it 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 sort of makes me think of Cassidy from uh oh my god what's it called preacher there we go um he did have a little bit of self-hate going on there, but um, he was also having the time of his life sometimes. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, and enough self-awareness to know that he didn't necessarily want to inflict that existence on anyone else. Yeah, absolutely. Which is which is interesting. Um, yeah, I read a book recently called The Immortal Doc Holiday, which was, it was okay. But what I liked about it was that um, Doc Holiday, the main character, was a sort of psychic vampire as in he could draw the energy out of people mm-hmm. but the exchange for this skill and the woman who was a, a, an actual vampire who made him like that mm-hmm. um, was that he would spend his long immortal life hunting down wrongdoers and Doc's kind of like but the rest of the time I get to hoard drink and gamble because he was kind of in a he, he was in a DOS house 200 years before dying of a combination of syphilis and and <laughs> and tuberculosis and she's like oh yeah you'll be you'll be young and strong and forever etc as long as you feed on this psychic energy and he's like right so i can drink gamble and whore for eternity and all i've got to do is kill pedophiles for you it's like i'm not, i'm on board i'm good <laughs> and i'm like yeah actually i can see why he is he's not full of self-loathing you know he's, he's not a good guy he is not a white hat but at the same time there is something about the character that you can identify with because if most of us were given that kind of choice how many of us would go oh no no, no that sounds terrible yeah i mean maybe what you want to do with your immortal life is just paint beautiful pictures and that's fine it's just that his interests were being dissolute <laughs> so i can see that um i suppose the other thing is uh the the default characters always being vampires and werewolves yeah it's i mean i do like a good vampire and werewolf so um, do i but you know what let's make them the horrible folkloric vampires that can't enter a building if you scatter seeds on the doorstep let's do something weird and interesting yeah i mean that's the thing is it's like is this the whole idea of oh vampires they're they're kind of sexy and i'm just there like a na 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 you've been reading too much carmilla you've been (laughs) most vampires aren't even interested in drinking blood they're after your feces and your urine and your sexual excretions yeah exactly and like some vampires are described as just these sort of balls of flesh um, you know, <laughs> I love the tight way you said that. Like, yes, that is an accurate description. <laughs> like, there's nothing sexy about it at all. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, I mean, um, it, and it, sorry. That is so, sorry. I was just going to say uh, it's not really a spoiler, but this is something that will appear in a future Harker and Black sort. Not a ball of flesh, but um, <laughs> well, a, a different perspective on the vampire and werewolf mythos will be forthcoming. <laughs> Yeah, there's um, because <laughs> Jules, Jules got pissed off with this shit and did something <laughs> about it. There is a there's a bit in one of the Castrol books where 
someone thinks that someone else is a vampire and uh, not a vampire someone thinks that someone else is like a werewolf or something like that and Kestrel <laughs> is incredibly amused <laughs> this person's like I don't know I don't know what these things are like. <laughs> Leave me alone. <laughs> um, so yeah, I, I do have to agree. Also, like, this is the other thing that sort of annoys me is that you get a lot of the whole sort of the vampire. And now, of course, fairies have become very popular. But the way that people do fairies is really boring sometimes. I completely agree. Um, notable example... Uh, exception sorry is shauna Maguire's october day series where she has actually i mean shauna Maguire's something of a folklorist i think she had to drop out of college because you know they just she couldn't afford to go but she started off a degree in folklore so she kind of knows what she's doing she mm. always does her research and all her fae are different types i mean she even managed to come up with some that i hadn't heard of which was you know no means that's, that's impressive <laughs> Um, but she's got everything. She she's got um, A.S. Shea. She's got uh, Keith Shea. She's got um, the uh, Kusi and the Telworth Teague and and various other things. And she's done it respectfully as well. She's obviously learned something about them. She's done her own iteration of these creatures and mm. how they came to be in that part of America, etc. Um, but it it makes sense. There's an internally consistent logic. Yeah. I've seen people complain in reviews about her going, sort of say derisively, oh, and we've got all the different types of fairies. And I'm like, you've clearly picked a book that you're not going to like. So why are you bothering to review it? And why did you bother to read it when you knew you weren't going to like it from the beginning? Because the clue was kind of there. You know, she wasn't yeah. being subtle about what she was writing about. Yeah, I, I'm just... I don't really like it because it is just this idea of, oh, well, all fairies are, are gorgeous. And you're like, okay, but are we forgetting the the monstrous ones? Are we forgetting the... And also it's like, a, oh, okay, but we've got high fae and, and stuff like that. And I'm like, okay, but still, still. <laughs> still, they're not... What you're... is like when people say, oh, all fairies are gorgeous, part of that's come from the idea of Tolkien's elves. Yeah. And part of it has come from the idea of the Shea from Irish mythology. And not yeah. all the Shea were gorgeous either. Some of them were, but some of them were hideous. They really were really, really hideous. <laughs> and the fact is that even the ones who were good looking, there was something uncanny about many of them. Yeah, you know? it was the kind of beauty that made you very nervous. Yeah. Um, as in, you looked and you got that uncanny valley feeling. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, yeah, I, I I agree. It just, you start to get a little bit bored. I'm like, where are my, you know, is where, where are my dead things? Where are my dead things at? <laughs> where are my dead fairies at? The death fairies. They're terrifying. Come on, guys. <laughs> anyway. Yes. Let's move on. Um, <laughs> the main character getting pregnant. Yeah, um, I do have to qualify that this is this is again one of Jules's pet peeves. Um, it's it bugs me because it's so often done to close a romantic subplot, um, or it's done because the author doesn't know what to do with that character next. And it's a, 
I've seen it used like the rape backstory or, you know, the rape in series to give the character something to get over. Mm. And I've I've seen it done where they get pregnant and they miscarry and it's just something to do. And I I find that incredibly disrespectful. But I also find that, again, it's got its roots in this sort of sexist idea that this is all that female characters can do. So rather yeah. than throw them another challenge like you've got to learn something or you've got to negotiate an adult relationship properly where you communicate and ship, which, yeah. by the way, is really hard. Um, we're just going to have you get pregnant and let the chips fall where they may. And that just pisses me off. Yeah, I completely agree. Now, again, um, I don't mind this when it's done properly because it is a tragedy of life in the same way that if you're exploring all sorts of other tragedies in life there's no i have no problem with people exploring this kind of tragedy the loss of a child particularly if it's you know a child that was very much wanted and stuff like that this is an experience that actually quite a lot of women will have to go through because a lot of women will go through at least one kind of miscarriage um, so I don't mind that. Um, but it is, it's the laziness of, well, I'm not really sure where else to take it. it. Particularly if it's not really relevant to the kind of the character. Now, if you've got a character, for instance, who actually genuinely really, really wants to be a mother. This is something that, that they've really kind of pushed towards. This is something that has actually been a part of their of their character and not the only aspect of their character but a part of their character and then they go through this um it can make sense depending on what kind of story you're going for but i'm with jules on this really um it's like there are other things to explore for example madeline's mentioned a character who really wants to be a mother mm-hmm. um okay my turn for a non-urban fantasy example but um in fire which is part of the Graceling series, mm-hmm. uh, the main character, Fire, desperately wants to have children, but her intrinsic power, which she has control over, but she's seen her father misuse all his life, means that she knows she's going to pass it on to her own children, or she might do. So she makes the decision to sterilise herself so this dangerous power doesn't get passed on. And she's desperately upset because she really, really wants children but she also knows it's the responsible thing to do. And it's so well explored and so well done, particularly because you have the the man that she ends up with. She explains it to him and says, you know, I've done this thing. I made this decision not to have children. This is my reason why. This is a man who suffered at the hands of her father. Mm -hmm. And he comforts her by saying, you know, we'll, we'll just adopt. He's already got a daughter of his own. It's like, you know, my daughter loves you as a mother you you know we'll have we we will adopt 10 children there are many many unwanted children there are so many other angles you can go from so you can have someone who desperately wants children but can't have them for whatever reason you can have someone who's got no interest in having children at all yeah and it isn't just fixed by them getting pregnant they genuinely don't want children they don't want to be that person yeah and actually you could you could have the story which is someone who doesn't want to have children and they get pregnant and they still don't actually want children you know so they decide not to have the child exactly that's an option yeah um you know whether that's because they decide to have uh, an abortion or whether they decide to give the child up for adoption or something like that you know there's lots of ways that you can kind of explore these things and still include questions of 
of motherhood um and or or, or parenthood or you know just different things like that um it doesn't need to be a right well we're just going to make her pregnant but we don't actually want to deal with a baby so we'll make her lose the baby um if it's not relevant to her story if it's not relevant to kind of what she's going through you've got to ask yourself why you've decided to do this and again i don't have a problem if people do decide to do it um i really really don't it'd be hypocritical if i did um but uh you know you've got to ask yourself why you have decided to do it yeah definitely and i will uh, another person who did it very well was melissa f olsen in her scarlet bernard series um sorry guys spoiler but um as i've said scarlet is a null she nullifies anyone who comes near her with magic and just makes them basically human again yeah and the thing with nulls is they're infertile. They cannot have children. So she's known from a very early age that she will never have children, except by the end of the second trilogy, she finds that she's pregnant. And there are specific circumstances for why that happens. And it is actually thought out. You know, She considers the implications of having a baby, a baby that she will have to basically hide its identity because the chances are the baby will be null as well. Mm-hmm. And null and people try to get hold of nulls early in their lives. I mean, Scarlett's own family was murdered because people were trying to get hold of her to use her services. So you have warring vampire courts and things. Yeah. Um, it's really useful if you send in a null. The others turn into non-vampires, and you can just gun them down, for example. Yeah. And she knows that that her daughter will probably end up being the same. So it was really well explored. Should I do this? Should I do this to another person? Mm. Um, is it selfish to have a child who is always going to have this target on them? Yeah. And it was just, you know, she considers not having the child, she considers having the child. Am I having it out of selfish reasons? I just don't see that reason through enough in urban fantasy, or in fact anything else. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, So, yeah, there's lots of ways of exploring it. Yeah. Okay, the last one. You don't have to change everything. Yeah, it, it's it's more of a a kind of a wrap up thing, and you probably yeah. shouldn't. Maybe you shouldn't change any of the things we've suggested. You might have your own set list of annoyances that really bug you that you'd like to change. Yeah, and perhaps some of the things that we've said you should do are on your list of annoyances. In which case, kudos to you. Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, definitely. Um, and, you know, that that's all fine. I suppose what we come down on in the end, and as we've said, this is opinion. So even when we've got a bit fiery or a bit annoyed about things, um, it is just opinion. It's not a, a prescriptive set of things that you should work on in your own writing. But I would say add things in consciously. So if yeah. you're doing a trope the same way other people have done it, are you doing it because they've done it that way? Or are you doing it because you genuinely think that's the best way of doing the trope? Yeah. And does it fit with your story? That's the other thing. Um, Because at the end of the day, ultimate thing that you need to do is be true to your book, be true to your characters, be true to the story that you're trying to tell. Um, And I think that everybody can find themselves getting caught in with tropes and ideas that we feel are expected, but might not necessarily be right for the story that we're telling. Yeah, absolutely. So ask yourself that. Is it right for your book? And if it is, go for it. And if it isn't, then 
ask yourself whether there might be something else that you can do instead. Yes. Um, well, we're going to finish up there. Um, thank you guys so much for listening. Uh, we would love to hear what your thoughts about this are. Are there any ideas that you think that we've missed out on? Other things that you find really, really annoying in speculative fiction? Or do you think that we've been a little bit unfair? Do let us know. We'd love to hear from you. Before we go, it is time for our Dissecting Dragons recommendation of the week. And Jules, I believe you've got a slightly unusual one for us. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's unusual in the sense that it is, um, <laughs> it's non-fiction, um, but it's not unusual in the sense of being something I would read. <laughs> <laughs> that is The Book of Trespass by Nick Hayes. Um, full disclosure, I don't entirely agree with everything that Hayes says in his book. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is my opinion that he cherry picks historical facts to back his arguments rather than presenting the whole on on issues which affect what he's talking about Mm -hmm. but the bulk of what he's talking about which is our access in the UK particularly in England to green spaces being held by a privileged very few people and the backhand deals that remove public access and rights of way and things I would say is accurate it's very interesting and it is genuinely a, a really good book the whole thing is about the fact, basically that the entire book is about him trespassing where he technically doesn't have any right to go. And I don't mm. mean people's gardens and things, but I mean wide um, parks and, and mountains and lakes and things that technically belong to other people because it's on their land. But, mm. you know, obviously no one's there um, because he just wants to draw the area. Yeah. And it's it's a look at why we as the public in the UK and England specifically only have access to something like 13% of the green spaces and the rest of it is privately owned. So there's a lot going on there in terms of class, wealth and privilege and, and also who should hold the land and who should own the land kind of thing. Um, it's, it's a complicated subject to get into. As I said, I don't agree with everything he says because he doesn't present i know for a fact that some of historical his historical arguments are, are inaccurate but when it comes to sort of the land registry stuff that i believe is accurate and it's definitely food for thought yeah it's a very very interesting topic and certainly something which i think more people to be need to be aware of and more people need to be thinking about so um it's it's a book that even i've i've had a look at and you know my record with uh with reading those kinds of books so it's definitely worth exploring guys and on that note i will say thanks very much for listening hope to hear from you guys soon and we'll catch you guys later yeah thanks and goodbye bye you've been listening to dissecting dragons the speculative fiction podcast you can follow our podcast at podbean.com or from itunes For more information, visit our Facebook page at www.facebook.com forward slash dissecting readers or check out our author websites at jaironside.com and madelinevaughan.com. Please note that no dragons were harmed during the making of this podcast.